Heaven, like hell, is other people. One of the newest and most ambitious alcoholism studies involves a group of men in the Baltimore area who were in therapy for alcohol abuse. Many had been ordered by a court to choose between receiving professional treatment or going to prison, so they were hardly the ideal population of people trying to quit. They may have only been going through the motions as an alternative to prison. The researchers, led by Carlo Di Clemente of the University of Maryland, measured a large assortment of psychological variables and then tracked the men intensively for several months to test a variety of hypotheses, many of which didn't work out. But the researchers did isolate an important external factor that predicted whether the men would remain sober and how serious their lapses would be, whether they'd go on a binge or stop at a drink or two and then get back on the wagon. The drinkers were asked if they contacted other people for help and social support for their efforts to avoid drinking. The ones who were better at getting support from other people ended up abstaining more frequently and doing less overall drinking. Social support is a peculiar force and can operate in two different ways. Plenty of research suggests that being alone in the world is stressful. Loners and lonely people tend to have more of just about every kind of mental and physical illness than people who live in rich social networks. Some of that is because people with mental and physical problems make fewer friends, and indeed, some potential friends may shy away from someone who seems maladjusted. But simply being alone or lonely leads to problems also. A lack of friends tends to contribute to alcohol and drug abuse. Still, all social support is not the same. Having friends may be great for your mental and physical health, but if your friends are all drinkers and drug users, they may not be much help in restraining your own impulses. They may directly or indirectly pressure you to drink as an integral part of socializing. In 19th century America, for example, there was a social convention called the Barbecue Law, which meant that all the men who gathered for a barbecue were expected to drink until they were soused. To refuse a drink entailed a serious insult to the host and the rest of the party. More recently, many studies have found that people drink more when they're encouraged by their friends. People struggling with an alcohol or drug problem need social support for not drinking, and that's where a group like AA can be vitally helpful. Alcoholics have spent so much of their lives surrounded by drinkers that they can't imagine the benefits of a different kind of peer pressure. It wasn't until Clapton was stuck inside Hazleton that he began looking for help from other people trying to stop drinking. Carr dutifully took herself to some AA meetings at a church during her first attempt to remain sober, but at first she was put off by the motley crowd and the earnest stories. She kept her distance until, after one particularly bad binge, she followed the AA advice and chose one member of the group, a fellow academic in Boston, as her sponsor her personal counselor. She had no patience for the sponsor's talk about a higher power, but the daily conversation still made a difference. With her administrations, I do not, for two months, drink, a white-knuckled, tooth-grinding effort that impresses no one outside the church basement I go to a few nights per week. When the two women met for coffee to celebrate the two months of sobriety, Carr complained about the losers and loons in their AA group and their spiritual crap. Then, as Carr recalls, her sponsor suggested another way to think of a higher power, 
and of the group in the church basement. Here, she says, are a bunch of people. They outnumber you, outearn you, outweigh you. They are, ergo, in some simplistic calculation, a power greater than you. They certainly know more about staying sober than you. If you have a problem, bring it to the group. Part of the group's power comes from the passive act of sitting there and listening. To novices, AA meetings can seem pointless because most of the speakers just take turns telling their own stories instead of responding to one another and offering advice. But the act of telling a story forces you to organize your thoughts, monitor your behavior, and discuss goals for the future. A personal goal can seem more real once you speak it out loud, particularly if you know the audience will be monitoring you. A recent study of people undergoing cognitive therapy found that resolutions were more likely to be kept if they were made in the presence of other people, especially a romantic partner. Apparently, promising your therapist that you will cut down on drinking is not a powerful boost to self-control, but promising your spouse makes a big difference. Your spouse, after all, is the one who's going to smell your breath. To quantify the power of peer group pressure, economists studied a group of Chilean street vendors, seamstresses, and other low-income micro-entrepreneurs who had received loans from a non-profit group. These people, mostly women, met in groups every week or two to receive training and to monitor the repayment of their loans. The economists, Philippe Cast, Stefan Meyer, and Dina Pomeranz, randomly assigned these people to different savings programs. Some were simply given a no-fee savings account. Others received the account plus the opportunity at their regular meetings to announce their saving goals and then have their progress discussed. The women subject to peer scrutiny saved nearly twice as much money as the others. The result seemed to confirm the power of the group. But where did the power come from? Could these effects be achieved with a virtual peer group? In a follow-up experiment, instead of discussing their savings out loud at a meeting, the Chilean women regularly received text messages noting their weekly progress, or lack thereof, along with information on how the rest of the savers in their group were doing. Surprisingly, these text messages seemed to be about as effective as the meetings, apparently because the messages provided the women with the virtual version of the same key benefits, regular monitoring, and the chance to compare themselves with their peers. Smoking cigarettes has long been regarded as a personal physical compulsion due to overwhelming impulses in the smoker's brain and body. Hence, there was considerable surprise in 2008 when the New England Journal of Medicine published a study showing that quitting smoking seems to spread through social networks. The researchers, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, found that kicking the habit seemed to be contagious. If a member of a married couple quit smoking, the odds of the other spouse quitting would increase dramatically. The odds also got better if a brother, sister, or friend quit. Even co-workers had a substantial effect as long as the people worked together in a fairly small firm. Smoking researchers have been especially intrigued by places where very few people smoke, because the assumption was that these remaining few must be seriously addicted. Indeed, one popular theory was that more or less everybody who can easily quit smoking has already done so, leaving behind a hard core of heavily addicted smokers who could not kick the habit for love or money. 
but wave after wave of evidence has contradicted this theory. While some people will go on puffing all by themselves, smokers who live mainly among non-smokers tend to have high rates of quitting, indicating again the power of social influence and social support for quitting. Studies of obesity have detected similar patterns of social influence, as we'll discuss later. Sacred Self-Control If you're in a religious congregation and ask God for longer life, you are likely to get it. It doesn't even seem to matter which God you ask. Any sort of religious activity increases your longevity, according to the psychologist Michael McCullough, who isn't religiously devout himself. He looked at more than three dozen studies that had asked people about their religious devotion and then kept track of them over time. It turned out that the non-religious people died off sooner, and that at any given point, a religiously active person was 25% more likely than a non-religious person to remain alive. That's a pretty hefty difference, especially when the measure is being alive versus dead. And that result, published in 2000, has since been confirmed by other researchers. Some of those long-lived people no doubt like to think that God was directly answering their prayers, but divine intervention was not the kind of hypothesis that appealed to social scientists, if only because it was so tough to test in the lab. They have found more earthly causes. Religious people are less likely than others to develop unhealthy habits, like getting drunk, engaging in risky sex, taking illicit drugs, and smoking cigarettes. They're more likely to wear seatbelts, visit a dentist, and take vitamins. They have better social support, and their faith helps them cope psychologically with misfortunes. And they have better self-control, as McCullough and his colleague at the University of Miami, Brian Willoughby, recently concluded after analyzing hundreds of studies of religion and self-control over eight decades. Their analysis was published in 2009 in a psychological bulletin, one of the most prestigious and rigorous journals in the field. Some of the effects of religion were unsurprising. Religion promotes family values and social harmony, in part because some values gain in importance by being supposedly linked to God's will or other religious values. Less obvious benefits included the finding that religion reduces people's inner conflicts among different goals and values. As we noted earlier, conflicting goals impede self-regulation. So it appears that religion reduces such problems by providing believers with clearer priorities. More important, religion affects two central mechanisms for self-control, building willpower and improving monitoring. As early as the 1920s, researchers reported that students who spent more time in Sunday school scored higher on laboratory tests of self-discipline. Religiously devout children were rated relatively low in impulsiveness by both parents and teachers. We don't know of any researchers who have specifically tested the self-control consequences of regular prayers or other religious practices, but these rituals presumably build willpower in the same way as the other exercises that have been studied, like forcing yourself to sit up straight or speak more precisely. Religious meditations often involve explicit and effortful regulation of attention. The beginner's exercise in Zen meditation is to count one's breath up to 10 and then do it again, over and over. The mind wanders quite naturally, 
so bringing it back to focus narrowly on one's breathing builds mental discipline. So does saying the rosary, chanting Hebrew psalms, repeating Hindu mantras. When neuroscientists observe people praying or meditating, they see strong activity in two parts of the brain that are also important for self-regulation and control of attention. Psychologists see an effect when they expose people to religious words subliminally, meaning that the words are flashed on a screen so quickly that the people aren't consciously aware of what they've seen. People who are subliminally exposed to religious words like God or Bible become slower to recognize words associated with temptations like drugs or premarital sex. It looks as if people come to associate religion with tamping down these temptations, says McCullough, who suggests that prayers and meditation rituals are a kind of anaerobic workout for self-control. Religious believers build self-control by regularly forcing themselves to interrupt their daily routines in order to pray. Some religions, like Islam, require prayers at fixed times every day. Many religions prescribe periods of fasting, like the day of Yom Kippur, the month of Ramadan, and the 40 days of Lent. Religions mandate specific patterns of eating, like kosher food or vegetarianism. Some services and meditations require the believer to adopt and hold specific poses, like kneeling or sitting cross-legged in the lotus position, so long that they become uncomfortable and require discipline to maintain them. Religion also improves the monitoring of behavior, another of the central steps to self-control. Religious people tend to feel that someone important is watching them. That monitor might be God, a supernatural being who pays attention to what you do and think, often even knowing your innermost thoughts and reasons, and can't be easily fooled if you do something apparently good for the wrong reason. In a notable study by Mark Baldwin and his colleagues, Female undergraduates read a sexually explicit passage on a computer screen. Then, some of the women were subliminally shown a photograph of the Pope. Afterward, when asked to rate themselves, the Catholic women, that is, the ones who'd accepted the Pope's religious authority and associated him with God's commandments, rated themselves more negatively, presumably because their unconscious had registered the image of the Pope and left them with a sense of disapproval for having read and possibly enjoyed the erotic reading. Regardless of whether religious people believe in an omniscient deity, they are generally quite conscious of being monitored by human eyes, the other members of their religious community. If they attend a house of worship regularly, they feel pressured to control their behavior according to the community's rules and norms. Even outside of church, religious people often spend time with one another and may feel that their misbehaviors will be noticed with disapproval. Religions also encourage monitoring through rituals, such as the Catholic Sacrament of Confession and the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur that require people to reflect on their moral failures and other shortcomings. Of course, it takes some discipline to even start practicing a religion because you have to attend services, memorize prayers, and follow rules. One reason for the higher levels of self-control found among religious people is that the congregations are biased samples of people who started out with higher self-control than average. But even after taking that factor into account, researchers still see evidence that self-control improves with religion, and many people instinctively reach the same conclusion 
That's why they take up religion when they want more control. Other people in times of personal troubles rediscover the faith they've learned in their childhood but then abandoned. Their religious reawakening may involve a vague regret that if they'd lived the proper way, they wouldn't be having their current problems with alcohol or drugs or debt. But underlying that regret is most likely the recognition that the discipline of religion will help them get back on track. Mary Carr, the lifelong agnostic, ended up surrendering so completely that she was baptized a Catholic and even went through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, an advanced series of rigorous, time-consuming prayers and meditations. Her path, clearly, is not for everyone. Even if you were willing to adopt Catholicism or another religion just to improve your self-control, you probably couldn't gain most of the benefits without genuine belief. Psychologists have found that people who attend religious services for extrinsic reasons, like wanting to impress others or make social connections, don't have the same high level of self-control as the true believers. McCullough concludes that the believer's self-control comes not merely from a fear of God's wrath, but from the system of values they've absorbed, which gives their personal goals an aura of sacredness. He advises agnostics to look for their own set of hallowed values. That might be a devout commitment to helping others, the way that Henry Stanley made it his sacred task in Africa to end the slave trade. It might be a commitment to improve others' health or spread humane values or preserve the environment for future generations. It's probably no coincidence that environmentalism is especially strong in rich countries where traditional religion has waned. The devotion to God seems to give way to a reverence for nature's beauty and transcendence. Environmentalists' exhortations to reduce consumption and waste are teaching children some of the same self-control lessons offered in religious sermons and Victorian primers. Secular greens seem to be instinctively replacing one form of self-discipline with another, and one kind of rules with another, organic instead of kosher, sustainability instead of salvation. Nor is it just a coincidence that people who have set aside the Bible end up buying so many books with new sets of rules for living. They replace the Ten Commandments with the Twelve Steps, or the Eightfold Path, or the Seven Habits. Even if they don't believe in the God of Moses, they like the idea of codes on sacred tablets. These sorts of rules and dogmas may leave you cold and make you nervous, but don't dismiss them all as useless superstition. There's another way to regard these rules, and it comes with enough statistical charts, mathematical game theory, and economic jargon to please the most secular scientists. Bright Lines When Eric Clapton relapsed on that summer evening when he drove by a pub and couldn't resist stopping in for a drink, he was undone by what's called hyperbolic discounting. The most precise way to explain that concept is with graphs and hyperbolas, but we'll try a visual metaphor, mixed with an old allegory. Think of Eric Clapton on that Saturday evening as a repentant sinner who was literally on the road to salvation, like the hero of Pilgrim's Progress, the 17th century allegory. Suppose that he, too, is journeying toward a celestial city. While traveling through the open countryside, he can see the city's far-off golden spires and keeps heading in their direction. This evening, he looks ahead and notices a pub, strategically situated at a bend in the road 
so that it's directly in front of travelers. From this distance, it looks like a small building, and he still keeps his eyes fixed on the grander spires of the celestial city in the background. But as Eric the Pilgrim approaches the pub, it looms larger. And when he arrives, the building completely blocks his view. He can no longer see the golden spires in the distance. Suddenly, the celestial city seems much less important than this one little building. And thus, verily, our pilgrim's progress endeth, with him passed out on the pub's floor. That's the result of hyperbolic discounting. We can ignore temptations when they're not immediately available, but once they're right in front of us, we lose perspective and forget our distant goals. George Ainsley, a renowned psychiatrist and behavioral economist with the Department of Veteran Affairs, worked out the mathematics of this foible by using some clever variations of the familiar experiments testing long-term and short-term rewards. For instance, if you won a lottery with a choice of prizes, would you prefer $100 to be paid six years from today or $200 to be paid nine years from today? Most people will choose the $200. But what if the choice were between $100 today and $200 three years from today? A rational discounter would apply the same logic and conclude once again that the extra money is worth the wait. But most people will instead demand the quick $100. Our judgment is so distorted by the temptation of immediate cash that we irrationally devalue the future prize. Ainsley found that as we approach a short-term temptation, our tendency to discount the future follows the steep curve of a hyperbola, which is why this tendency is called hyperbolic discounting. As you devalue the future, like those heroin addicts in Vermont who couldn't think beyond the next hour, you lose your concern about a hangover tomorrow and you're not focused on your vow to go through the rest of your life sober. Those future benefits now seem trivial in relation to the immediate pleasure at the pub. What's the harm in stopping by for one drink? For many people, of course, there is no harm in stopping for a drink, just as some people, not many, can enjoy one cigarette at a party and not smoke again for months. But if you're someone who can't control your drinking or your smoking, you can't look on that drink or cigarette as an isolated event. You can't have one glass of champagne because you're toasting your best friend's wedding. You need to see the one lapse as a precedent that will establish a long-term pattern. For our pilgrim, that means recognizing that if he pops into the village pub for one drink, he's going to have another and another, and may never make it to the celestial city. So before the road takes him too close to the pub and warps his judgment, he needs to prepare himself. The simplest policy might be to just avoid pubs. Before getting close to one, he could leave the main road and take a detour around it. But how could he be sure he'd follow that policy consistently? Suppose, as he prepares to take the detour around the pub, he remembers that farther down the road, in the next city, is a tavern that's unavoidable. It sits right next to the only bridge spanning the river he must cross. He fears that when he reaches that city tavern tomorrow evening, he'll yield to temptation. Suspecting that his dream of a long, sober walk to the celestial city might be doomed, Eric the Pilgrim starts bargaining with himself. If I'm going to get drunk anyway tomorrow evening, what difference does it make if I stop for a drink now? Carpe diem! Bottoms up! For him to resist a drink tonight 
he needs to be confident that he won't yield to temptation tomorrow. He needs the help of bright lines, a term that Ainsley borrows from lawyers. These are clear, simple, unambiguous rules. You can't help but notice when you cross a bright line. If you promise yourself to drink or smoke moderately, that's not a bright line. It's a fuzzy boundary with no obvious point at which you go from moderation to excess. Because the transition is so gradual and your mind is so adept at overlooking your own peccadilloes, you may fail to notice when you've gone too far. So you can't be sure you're always going to follow the rule to drink moderately. In contrast, zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. It's not practical for all self-control problems. A dieter cannot stop eating all food, but it works well in many situations. Once you're committed to following a bright line rule, your present self can feel confident that your future self will observe it too. And if you believe that the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes an especially bright line. You have more reason to expect your future self to respect it, and therefore your belief becomes a form of self-control, a self-fulfilling mandate. I think I won't, therefore I don't. Eric Clapton discovered that bright line in one moment at Hazleton, and he appreciated its powers once again when he chaired an AA meeting not long after the death of his son. He spoke about the third of the twelve steps, handing your will over to the care of a higher power, and told the group how his compulsion to drink had vanished the instant he got down on his knees at Hazleton and asked for God's help. From then on, he told them, he never doubted he would have the will to remain sober, not even on the day his son died. After the meeting, a woman came up to him. You've just taken away my last excuse to have a drink, she told him. I've always had this little corner of my mind which held the excuse that if anything were to happen to my kids, then I'd be justified in getting drunk. You've shown me that's not true. Upon hearing her, Clapton realized that he had found the best way to honor the memory of his son. Whatever you call his gift to that woman, social support, faith in God, trust in a higher power, a bright line, it left her with the will to save herself.